scripture. This is Matthew 21, verses 1 to 22. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence with us, even in different and difficult circumstances. This morning, we ask you would speak to our hearts as we study your word, and that you would call us to a deeper life with you, uh, especially during these times. We ask this in your name. Amen. How are we doing, Brian? So far, so good? Awesome. All right. When I was a teenager, I flew on a plane a couple times, not a lot, but a couple times, and I often went with Matt Eichel, who was my, my friend in high school. Um, Matt, if you ever hear this or are listening to this, I hope you enjoy and remember this story. Um, so the first time, one of the first times we flew in a plane, we were, uh, I mean, I think Matt had probably flown in a plane before, but I hadn't, and uh, there was a little bit of trepidation, and so uh, naturally, as you do when you are descending the ramp to get on the airplane, you sing um, intense music. And so we decided the, the best song to capture the experience of going into the metal contraption and flying us somewhere was the Imperial March from Star Wars. And so as we're descending the ramp, we uh, together, people were looking at us, we together went da 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 
uh, until we got quite close to where everyone was. And um, so it was great. And, and so then naturally, I mean, we survived and the plane landed and we were so excited once we landed that naturally the theme to sing on your way out of the airplane was da 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 as we extended the ramp and uh, people were very excited. Um, so we did this several times whenever we traveled and um, I tried doing it with my wife uh, years later. Uh, I said, this is what you do. Like, you realize when you're in a plane, this is what you do, right? <laughs> she was like, <laughs> I sang by myself, put it, put it bluntly. Anyway, um, we were singing the theme that captured the moment as we were heading either out of the city or into the city. Uh, one with a little bit of fear, one with a lot of joy. We're declaring our arrival. Almost like, think of like the, the homecoming team returning, right? The band strikes up. That's what we were going for. I say, I, I start with that story because it, it reminded me of what Jesus does here. Jesus does something very specific to announce his arrival. He wants to announce who he is and by extension, what that means, who he means as himself for you and I. If he is who he is, what does that mean for you and me? So let's dive in and take a look. There's three movements in this passage. There's the coming into the city, then there's the movement in the temple, his actions at the temple, then there's the fig tree. And we're gonna go through each of those and, and just examine Jesus' identity, who he is and what that means for you and me. So first Jesus enters Jerusalem and the passage begins with Jesus sending his disciples to get a donkey. Why not just walk into the city, right? Matthew tells us straight away what this is about. Jesus is planning a uh, prophetic demonstration. He is intentionally acting this out and he's drawing on a prophetic action from Israel's prophetic history. Something that would mean something very specific to these people at this time. And Matthew tells us Jesus is drawing from and enacting Zechariah 9.9. He's also quoting a bit of uh, Isaiah 62.11. That's the daughter of Zion bit in verse 9. Your king is coming, humble, mounted on a donkey. And this idea of Jesus coming on the donkey is uh, very indicative, indicative of the coming king. He is vividly declaring through Zechariah 9.9, I'm the coming king. Triumphant victorious, riding on a donkey, that this is the return of the righteous messianic king, the one who would come from David's line. And even more than that, as we've seen, as we've gone through a bit of Matthew in these past few months, that he is also the new Moses, the new prophet. And of course, more than that, as Christians, we believe he's not just the new Messiah. This is God himself come to us. Matthew may also be alluding, there's a, a verse in Genesis 49, 8 to 12, where Jacob prophesies a king will come from the line of Judah and his rule will extend to the nations. So all of that is background as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's entering according, you might say, to an ancient script written ages before that a day would come when a new David would claim the throne and he'd be the one to make all of God's promises come true. So Jesus is staging this. He's declaring his identity and he's fulfilling God's promises. How do the crowds respond? Well, they pick it up 
pretty straight away. They know, they understand what Jesus is doing. It's not lost on them. So they join right in. His entourage sort of picks up the gesture, you might say. And they enter into the, the performance. They start laying their garments down. They start gathering palm branches. Because that's what you do to signal the arrival of a newly anointed king. So they're recreating the scene. And the palm branches, this is a symbol of Israel's sort of national identity and victory. In fact, in the period between the Old and New Testaments, if you read 1 Maccabees, there's a passage about uh, people coming into Jerusalem, coming in with the palm branches, with harps and cymbals, because an enemy's been defeated. Someone's come to sort of uh, bring Israel out from under uh, the, the foot of the oppressor, so to speak. And so by reenacting this, the crowd is likely thinking Jesus has come to be a sort of military messiah. He's come to end the, the Roman rule over us. And of course, the shock will come when they realize this king reigns first from the tree. He'll defeat his enemies by allowing them to kill him. He'll be the Lord, not by exercising military might, but by calling people, the whole world, to repentance and to faith. This is indeed the king who comes, but not necessarily the king the people are expecting. He will indeed reign over the whole world, and he'll do that by rescuing us all from sin and evil and death. And so Jesus is enacting these memories and this hope. He's telling everyone, the king is here. The long-awaited Messiah has come, but are you ready? And how will you respond? John the Baptist was sent to get you ready, and now the Messiah is here, but will he be the Messiah you expected? And what will you do when he lays down his life for us? And here he comes, gentle and riding on a donkey, just as Zechariah has prophesied. But my, my suspicion, in fact, we know this, they were not ready for this king to go to the cross. And so the people are shouting Hosanna, call for Jesus to save them. And we read the whole, the whole city is stirred up, right? This is verse 10. The whole city stirred up and they're saying, who is this? And the crowd replies, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So for all of the sort of display of Jesus' royal procession into Jerusalem, the citizens of the city are not super impressed. And on one hand, you could almost read it as like the city slickers being kind of dismissive of like the, the rural country folk, like the bumpkins, you know? They're pouring into their city with their little local Galilean prophet and hailing him as some kind of king. And you can imagine... Uh, Jerusalem citizens sort of exchanging glances as this procession heads into town and asking over coffee and over lunch later that day, like, did you, who was that? Did you see what that was about? Who is that guy? And so here come the Galileans sort of pretending their guy is someone special. And the city people ask, who does this guy think he is? And the parade of outsiders sort of calls back and says, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. But, of course, there's much more going on than merely the sort of rural uh, clashing with the urban. Because they know the Messiah is meant to be an insider with royal blood from Judea. Everyone knew this. So what are they talking about? Nazareth. Well, how can anything good come from there? So the whole city is stirred up by Jesus' royal entrance, and they seem not to recognize who he is. But remember where this first act began, began with the donkey. And it could be that Matthew is, is even echoing a bit of Isaiah 1, verse 3. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner, but Israel does not know, 
my people do not understand. And Jesus had told the disciples, if someone asks what they're doing with the donkey, they're to say, their Lord, meaning the donkey's Lord, has need. So the donkey, the, the created order, responds with willingness to Jesus as king, while his people do not. Israel does not understand. Jesus has come, the returning king, he's dealing with the brokenness and the, and the faithlessness of people, and that's exactly what the next act is about. He's going to continue playing out the script. The promised coming Davidic king was to be the one who would build a house for God's name, and so Jesus goes to the temple. And he's now going to show all of Jerusalem what he meant when he told the Pharisees in Matthew 12, something greater than the temple is here. How are we doing, Brian? We're working so far? So far, we're so good. Awesome. So we move then to verse 12, Jesus' action in the temple. And I remember preaching about this last year. It's just important for us to remember, this temple is not like the tabernacle of old or the temple that Solomon built. This temple, uh, that temple was filled with the presence of God, the living God, his Shekinah glory. But after the people's idolatry and they're going into exile, the presence of the Lord leaves the temple and it eventually is destroyed. So what we have here is a second temple, a rebuilt temple, but this is a temple that's never been filled with the presence of God. In fact, people were waiting for the presence of God to come and restore his temple. Of course, what's happening? Here comes Emmanuel himself, the embodied presence of God now to the temple. What's he going to do when he gets there? Now, of course, the temple is, is central to Israel's identity. It's, and it is so because of what it is, right? This is the place where you encounter the living God. It's a place for prayer and for teaching and for learning how to forgiving, right? It's the place of God's presence. It's sort of the place where you would access him, might be the thought, right? You hear his word, you've come to pray, etc. Because God doesn't just want sort of, um, you know, money or just lots of blood from the animal sacrifices he wants people and, and in fact the animal sacrifices are a way of atoning for sin dealing with sin dealing with forgiveness all of that is going on at the temple but this is to be the house of god given by god as a place of worship and forgiveness and repentance cleansing of sin all of that and what does it become jesus says this is a place and a people of exploitation and greed and so just like his prophetic action to enter the city where he's declaring his kingship, now Jesus starts performing symbolic actions to deliver the message of God's judgment against the rulers of Jerusalem. And he starts turning over tables. If Jesus has come to Jerusalem to reign as God's chosen, then that means the current leadership's going to be in trouble. Right? They haven't been taking care of God's house. They're not running things as they should. They're not caring for people as they should. And that's why the priests and the scribes who are indignant towards Jesus' actions, they plot uh, an even worse fate for him. They start plotting to kill him. Jesus is going to enter this city as a king. He's going to exit as a criminal. And Jesus invites this response. He is intentionally stirring things up. As Rodney Reeves puts it in his Matthew commentary, he says, Jesus is asking for trouble. It's one thing to stage a little parade and pretend you're the king. It's something else to clear the temple, acting like you own the place. So Jesus quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah together. My house is a house of prayer, that's Isaiah, and you're making it a den of robbers, that's Jeremiah. Now the scholars are divided on the issue of what Jesus is, is sort of getting at, right? So some emphasize, well, maybe it's because the merchants are there and they're selling the animals at, at too high a price, 
and you know maybe the leaders are, are really corrupt and so Jesus is getting at the heart of the leaders and they're sort of hiding behind this facade of religiosity but but they're not really following God but I would say there's much more going on here just as the just as Jesus actions um, here throwing over the tables and whatnot isn't just a clearing or a purifying of the temple because Jesus will turn around in Matthew 24 not long after and actually say the temple's coming to an end and so this is another prophetic act it's not just about the righteousness of the priests or about the place being dirty because they're selling some things there in fact that it's okay for them to sell some things there because the pilgrims need to come and exchange their money to get the right animal to do uh, their sacrifices of course this is all happening in the court of the gentiles and so you might say well they've actually turned where the gentiles are supposed to come and meet with god into a place a, a sort of a marketplace and so there's all sorts of ways to kind of read this but the clearest thing, it seems to me, is that this is a signal of the end of the age has come and a new age is dawning. So Jesus' actions in the temple point to Malachi's prophecy where God himself would visit the temple and return. And also, however, this is a signal of its destruction. And so Jesus shaking the place up is like a living parable saying, soon this place will be destroyed. And not long after, in 80s, 60s, 70s, the temple is indeed destroyed. God has left the building, says Jesus, by this action. This is not the temple anymore. And this whole temple system is going to be finished. The Son of God has come, and he will build a house for God, but it will be an eternal house. And the sanctuary of his kingdom will last forever, but it won't be a physical brick-and-mortar building. Indeed, the true presence of Yahweh isn't found in this temple anymore. Something greater, indeed someone greater than the temple has come. It's here. You want to encounter the presence of the living God? You won't find it in the building. You won't find it just by keeping Torah. You won't find it in the Eastern religions. You won't find it in your naturalistic atheism. You will only find it through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the temple is over. It's finished. Jesus has come. The true presence, the true temple has come. Yahweh has indeed returned, but now it's all wrapped up in who Jesus is. It's all wrapped up, folks, in an encounter with Christ, with the living God. And it's only through Jesus that you and I can find the, the, the satisfaction, the answer to the longing that we have in our hearts, the, the hope we have in our hearts to be forgiven and to be loved and to receive grace. We find that in Jesus. And that shocks the people, especially the religious leaders. And it shocks our world today to say that Jesus is the only way to true life, the only way to God, uh, is shocking. That's not palatable to our modern sensibilities. And yet this is truth. And it's little wonder that Jesus has uh, no offers of where to stay that night, right? We read he has to leave town and rest for that night. But before he goes, notice what happens in the stillness following the disruption of Jesus' actions in the temple. At long last, you can almost imagine the place has been cleared out and now we read in verse 14 the blind and the lame start to come and it's the children who are the only ones there now praising God for all he's done contrast that image of those in need coming of the children praising the sense of sort of life and innocence coming for God contrast that with the priests the ruling priests they're indignant read again uh, verse 16 but Jesus doesn't stop the children. 
And the point is obvious. Those in need have come to the temple to find healing. They've come to encounter God and they found him in Jesus. Shouldn't we celebrate that? And Jesus quotes the first part of Psalm 8 verse 2 and then leaves his accusers to finish the rest. Out of the mouth of the praise of children and infants, uh, you've prepared praise. And the rest of it goes, you've established a stronghold against your enemies. And so the leaders are left with no choice. As Jesus lets the children praise, he's asking them, are you really welcoming me? Are you really welcoming God? Or have you actually turned against him? The king has come. The people have not received him. They start to plot to kill him. And so Jesus leaves the city for now. And that brings us to part three, the fig tree. Are we still doing okay? Awesome. That's great. Brilliant. So now we're at the fig tree. This is the final act we'll look at this morning, verse 18. So, so here we are. Jesus uh, <laughs> curses the fig tree. Same thing. It's a prophetic moment that emphasizes who Jesus is and what he's come to do, especially his authority. So Jesus has been rejected by Jerusalem like a prophet without honor, finding lodging outside of the city. And the next morning, Jesus and his disciples are in their way back in. Jesus sees the fig tree. It's full of leaves. He goes over to it, see if there's any fruit, and uh, it's not fruitful, and so he curses it, and immediately it starts to wither and die. Uh, Jesus hasn't really done anything like this before. We've had, we've had uh, walking on the waters, we've had feeding the 5,000, but here we are cursing a fig tree. And you know what's even worse, of course, is it's not even the season for figs. And so he's going up looking for fruit when he knows there shouldn't be fruit there and all the rest of them know there's going to be no fruit there. So what do we do with this? Is, it, is Jesus just impatient because he's hangry or something? He's really hungry? Um, I think what's interesting, look here the, in verse 20. The disciples see it and marveled and they say, how did the fig tree wither all at once? So what's, what's funny is what surprises them is not the cursing, but the speed of it, Right? They're like, how did this thing die so quickly? So they're not surprised at Jesus' power, but they are curious about what his prophetic action means. And perhaps the reason they get what's happening is because they understand why Jesus cursed the fig tree. He's, and probably that's why they're surprised at the death of the tree. They know what it means. See, a fruitless, uh, withering fig tree is a prophetic symbol, again, in Israel's prophetic literature. And it always points to divine judgment. And so the disciples seem to get what Jesus is, is getting at, that the fig tree equals Jerusalem. And in light of the previous day, the coming king parade, the, the confrontation at the temple, and the response of the leaders versus the praise of the children, this seems really clear. In cursing the fig tree, Jesus is forecasting the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And it's a sign of God's judgment on the city of David, its citizens don't recognize their king. And just as Jesus has come to the temple and found it full of activity, but not full of prayer, so the fig tree is full of leaves, but without fruit. And I, I think there's an important, important question here for us, friends, is when God sees us, are we full of activity, maybe even full of spiritual activity, but with no prayer? Are we full of doing things we think are glorifying to God, but we're not actually glorifying him? Are we full of leaves but no fruit? Are we full of thinking about Jesus but we'll never witness about him? Do we uh, love God but we don't really love our neighbors, right? May we repent of the times we have not faithfully lived for God and seek his face even today. K. 
King Jesus comes looking for fruit, people of faith and prayer, particularly in the leaders, right? And what he found was lots of outward building, lots of show, lots of leaves, but no real fruit. And with that, the group heads back into the city, so much closer now to Jesus' impending arrest and, and the looming suffering of the cross. There's some other great points here about Jesus calling the disciples to faith and whatnot. But I want to leave, leave our thoughts there for now. How do we live this story out? What are we to do with these sort of three acts? What's our response? So just a couple things to note today. Uh, regarding the entrance to Jerusalem and Jesus coming and the people getting very excited, I think we need to be aware that we can love Jesus for his blessings and his goodness and his salvation as long as that feels good to us and sort of uh, fits with our expectations and our agenda. But we need to be sure that like the religious leaders, we don't actually harden our hearts that when God does arrive and ask us to repent and change, we're willing to listen, right? Jesus calls us to repent and to turn from sin and to believe in him. That's the message of the gospel, each and every one of us. God is calling us to holiness, and that means laying down our agendas and our self-will to follow him. We talked last week about the call to take up your cross uh, and follow Jesus. This is about laying down some of ourselves, all of ourselves, so we can follow him. And so what happens in the entrance to Jerusalem is people excited about him and what he promises, but not actually willing to follow. And so I would uh, encourage you, dear listener, don't just be excited for the good news of Jesus, but choose to follow him. Regarding the temple, I think we need to be careful not to assume the role of Jesus and go about cleansing our temple, thinking we're high and mighty and super elite and God's gift to mankind and everyone else better do what we say or they don't quite get it, right? It's easy, as Jesus has said earlier in Matthew, it's easy to be arrogant, to see the speck of dust in someone else's eye when you're going around with a plank in your own eye. We can become uh, self-righteous. Let's not do that. Let's follow the king who comes with humility and gentleness. Let's come together to praise and to worship. We don't come to this house or into our friendships with one another seeking to turn over tables or thinking Jesus gives us license to do so. This is God coming in response to something very specific and our actions are not necessarily to do the same. So let's not be self-righteous. Let's be willing to come humbly and to submit and to learn and to grow. On the fig tree, last, uh, on the third act, fig trees are meant to produce figs, right? And Israel and her leaders were to be committed to following God and leading the people in righteousness. Folks, as Christians, we're called to follow Jesus and to make disciples. We may be full of green. We may have lots of leaves. The church may have lots of ministries. But if we're not reaching out to others with the love and the good news of Jesus, we're not producing fruit. We're called to invite others into the good news. So just as the temple is to be a house of prayer, do we make prayer a priority in our lives and in the life of the church? And I want to ask, in all of this, where do we need to be refined by the Holy Spirit? So that in our gatherings, as we come together again, when the day will come, will we fill this place? Will we be marked by prayer? Will we be marked by the coming of those who need a touch from God? Will we be marked by the children having license to worship, right? Jesus comes looking for a response, inviting a response. 
And my big question for us as we close this time is how have you responded to Jesus? Are you living in brokenness or are you pursuing God and the plans he has for you? Have you embraced the salvation and the forgiveness of God and, and come to faith in him today? Or are you like the religious leaders thinking, I'm good enough on my own. I don't need him showing up telling me how to live. Friends, it's the most important question you can answer. What do I do with God? Choose today to follow Jesus and not to reject him like so many do in this passage. May we be full of life and bear fruit during this season and caring well for others around us. And I want to... I want to read this poem on Palm Sunday by Malcolm Geit. Talking about Jesus coming to the gate of my heart. He says, now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart, the Savior comes, but will I welcome him? Oh, crowds of easy feelings make a start. They raise their hands, get caught up in the singing and think the battle's won. Too soon they'll find the challenge, the reversal he is bringing changes their tune. I know what lies behind the surface flourish that so quickly fades, self-interested, fearful guardedness, the hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come, break my resistance and make me your home. Palm Sunday by Malcolm Geith. Commend it to you. As Jesus invites himself to come into our hearts and in our lives, how do we respond to him? That's the big question for us this morning. Um, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's all I've got in terms of a sermon. Brian's got some prayer requests. Brilliant. Thank you, Brian. Um, also wanted to mention in the time we have left, if I'm able to, if my, if my phone continues to work, we're okay so far. Um, I have been struggling all week to think about uh, celebrating communion. I know some churches are still doing it um, online somehow, and I know others who are not, they're, they're just not for this time. I've been studying it and debating it in my mind all week. Um, I guess, so I landed on Pastorally, my heart was to tell you where I'm at regarding communion. <laughs> um, I've actually set up the table here um, as a reminder, and I actually have the stuff ready. Um, but I, we're not going to celebrate it this week. I, and here's why. A communion is, is meant to be, uh, it's designed to be a mark of the gathered body of Christ. And right now, we are physically scattered. Uh, someone said, right now, we all now feel like shut-ins. Who, who can't come to church, right? This is, now we're all kind of living that out. And our connection online is helpful. I mean, this is great that we can do this right now, but it's, it's not uh, a substitute. It's not a great substitute, right? This is meant to be temporary. This is not ideal. And so we're separated by the screen and we're conditioned when we are watching a screen to engage as spectators. It's, it's hard, it's difficult for us to actually become full participants when we're not physically, bodily present. And so I want to be careful that we don't treat worship 
as a commodity that we can just consume over a screen the same way we consume our favorite TV shows or a movie or something like that. And the communion meal especially is something we just actually can't physically do together because we're not all in the same room together in that way. So that, that said, our, our bodies, our physicality matters very, very deeply. And I think also we live in an age of, of we're used to sort of instant fixes, right? We're used to sort of, well, we'll just look it up on Google or the technology will kind of fix something for me. Um, but this is a different time in our world and I think it's okay if our worship time actually reflects this, that our worship is not the same as when we typically gather together. Um, and I think it's actually fitting for us to lament the fact that we can't gather corporately right now and that our worship, we don't try to just have the same sort of thing happen. That is actually is different and, it, and it's painful. Uh, someone told me this week, I, I really miss our corporate worship. Um, and so we are in a season where we are, we're not able to gather together and I don't want to just modify something so that we can continue to try and do what we've always done when we actually can't do that well. Does that make sense? Um, in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's talking about communion, he says often, when you come together. And there's this sense that it's the communion is something you do when you're gathered together as the body of Christ. Now, I understand we're gathered kind of online right now, and you guys can talk to each other and whatnot. And that's great, but it's not the same, right? It's just not the same. And so I, I just want to be aware of that. I'm not quite sure what I think about that. It's not just a matter of, um, of geography or, or timing, but it's also a matter of, a heart, of the heart. In that passage, Paul says, when you gather together and some of you are eating before others um, and you're not sort of resolving issues in the church, that you're actually eating separately, and that's not great. And so he, he's emphasizing not eating scattered, but eating together. Um, but that is more a matter of the heart, right? That there are issues in the church to deal with. Um, so Paul has no idea of any other way to gather. So can I read into that context his thoughts on online gathering? No, it wouldn't have even crossed his mind, right? But there's an emphasis there that as we're gathered physically together, we do so in a spirit of unity, in a spirit of joy, in a spirit of reconciling with each other when there's personal issues. Um, and so in that sense... Um, you know, we want to be aware of, of that emphasis there. Um, many are choosing not to celebrate, like I said, others are. I don't want us to be um, like judgmental towards those that maybe do or don't, depending on how we feel about it, that's not the point. But I, I don't want us to sort of change the essential nature of the act just to fit our circumstances. Um, but I also don't want us to fast from the benefits of having communion, the spiritual benefits of coming together and partaking of the body and blood of Christ, because it's, it's an essential act of worship for the church. So how do we navigate that? Well, I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> so I've read a number of articles. Um, our regional director, Rod Barks, made a great statement to me because I was asking them for their input, sort of our ACOP leadership, and he said, God is not offended by our sincere efforts to celebrate him and the body of Christ even if we stumble a bit during these unprecedented days. And so while we're scattered, we're not separated. I understand that. And while we're isolated, we're not necessarily alone. And while some of you may be quarantined, yes, we are gathered spiritually together as the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. Um, and so this table is here 
And uh, I'm still discerning as your pastor how to navigate that well. And um, so that's, that's where we're at. Um, for the time being, we lament the fact that we can't be together. So just wanted to make that note. Let's turn to prayer. We're going to wrap up with a time of prayer together. Thank you for those that could send in prayer requests. Appreciate that. Um, let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the technology we do have, the ability we've had this morning to connect with one another. And Lord, we do lament the fact that right now, uh, as a congregation, we can't gather physically, corporately in the same space. And we lament that, Lord. We recognize that that is an important part of our worship, our lives as Christians. And Jesus, I just pray you would continue to give us wisdom and direction during this time, uh, that you would minister to our hearts as we are separated, that you would uphold those who are feeling lonely and broken and um, discouraged. Lord, I pray that as we, um, as we seek to follow you, as we tune into things like this and, and ask, Lord, for you to come and, and to speak in our hearts, that you would draw us together by your spirit, that you would grow us more and more, Lord, in your love. I pray um, for those that, would, that need to soften their hearts as this prayer request has come in, to soften their hearts, Lord, through this pandemic, um, Lord, that this would be a wake-up call for us as your church, that it would be a wake-up call to the world, that we are not self-sufficient, Lord. We need you. We need you to come. Lord, we pray for, um, we pray for those that are, that are seeking Jesus, we pray that there would be a harvest through this time, that as people would come. Uh, someone, I heard someone say, the Lord's brought the world to its knees. We better repent while we're down here. So Lord, we just repent of our sins, uh, our sins as a nation. We ask that you would come and bring healing, Father, that you would set things to right. We pray, um, Lord, for our government and uh, our city, Lord, that you would guide those that are making decisions on behalf of others and you would give wisdom, Lord. We pray that you would lift up each one, Lord, that's in their homes today as we navigate these days together. Lord, we pray for our, our church leaders, West Mills, and our national team, and Rod Barks, Lord, our regional director, that you'd give them wisdom, bless and keep them, Lord. Lord, we pray that many would come to faith in you as we repent of our sins. And as we uh, desire to follow you, Lord, we pray for protection and strength for those who are serving the poor and the sick, those frontline essential workers, Lord, those in healthcare and, and every other place, Lord, where there's high traffic. We just pray for your, your hand upon each one. And Lord, we pray for peace and comfort for those who are suffering today. Jesus, that you would move in our hearts, in our midst, draw us to yourself. And with the words you taught us, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Friends, receive this benediction. Children of God, loved and forgiven by our Lord Jesus Christ, may you invite him and welcome him to the city of your heart. 
that he may reign there as king. May you be willing to let him overturn the places in your life that need to receive the truth and the light of God. May you receive him and embrace him as he comes to bear fruit in your life and to call you to repentance and faith. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. I love you. Thank you again for joining us. Hopefully this has worked all right. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care. God bless you.